Well, hey, good evening, guys. All right, cool. That's how it's going to be. That's all right. All right. Hey, I'm Willie. Uh, man, I'm, I'm honored to be with you guys tonight. Uh, but I got to be honest, like, I'm old, okay? Like, I turned 40 this year, all right? So normally uh, on a Tuesday evening at this time, like, I'm, just, I'm in my pajamas. Like, I'm getting settled on the couch with my wife, and we're watching HGTV. So, like, uh, this is way past my normal Tuesday night. Uh, but, yeah, so I'm the worship pastor at the West Location. I've been married to my wife, uh, Sarah Jane, for 18 years now. We have six children uh, and I've been leading worship in some capacity for like the last 16 years. I've been at City Light for almost three now. And one of my greatest passions is truly helping God's people connect spiritual truths to their hearts so that we can properly respond in worship to a worthy God. So because of that, I've been invited to come and talk to you guys tonight about worship, and I'm excited to do so. My goal is to help you get a deeper understanding of what worship is and why it matters and how we should respond. So what is worship? Is it a genre of music? Is it a religious activity event that we do? Um, should we use fog and moving lights? Or like, what's, what is this worship thing? Um, what qualifies something to be considered worship? I want to start with a very simple definition of what worship is, and we'll build upon that tonight. So this is, this is it. Simply put, worship means to bow down. Like, so literally, it is a picture of bowing or prostrate, which is literally laying on your face before somebody. And, and think about that. This picture, what does this picture communicate? Like, if you're bowing in front of somebody, you are communicating to them, you are superior. That I am powerless. Like, I surrender to your will and whatever you want to do. This is the posture of worship. And so, we begin there and we see this literally play out throughout the Old Testament worship. Old Covenant worship centered around a tent or a temple or a mountain or some type of holy place, and it included very specific rituals that were to be done to be considered worship. The book of Revelation shows us a picture of heavenly worship, and this centers around a literal throne of God where saints and angels will be like shouting and singing praises eternally, like if you've ever read Revelation, you've seen this, and like it is literally a, a Pentecostal church service on steroids. Like people, it's wild, right? People are shouting, they're singing, they're falling down, they're like throwing crowns. Like it's crazy, and it's so awesome. I can't wait. Some of you, that probably makes you really nervous, right? Ah, uh, but heavenly worship. We find ourselves somewhere in the middle here. We no longer worship according to the old covenant law with blood sacrifices, with incense, and these rituals that took place, but yet we don't yet get to worship in the heavenly place. So we're in this middle. So what should worship look like for a new covenant Christian, and how should we worship now? I think Jesus gives us some insight when he has a conversation with the woman at the well. Are you guys familiar with this? It's in John 4. We can turn there. Let's read a little bit of it together. Um, if you brought a Bible, turn to John chapter 4. While you're getting there, I'll give you a little context for, for time. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Jesus is traveling. He's getting, going through Samaria, 
and he gets to a well to stop and get a drink. He starts to have a, to have a conversation with this lady. Um, he starts telling her about better water than this well has to offer, living water that he has to offer that will make someone never thirst again. She's like, I want some of this water. He says, go get your husband. She's like, uh, and then like everything gets exposed. She's had multiple husbands. She's living with someone who's now not her husband. And uh, she recognizes, oh, this is not an ordinary guy. This is a prophet. So she's like, maybe we should talk about worship. And then she gets to verse 19, and that's where we're gonna jump into the story. And it says this, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So we see two specific components, essential to biblical worship, spirit, truth. Both are necessary to be biblical worship. So let's answer the, the uh, age-old age question, what is truth? The simple definition is this, facts that are accurate. Uh, it's not subjective. It's not opinion. So true worship depends to the best of our limited abilities, a right understanding of who God is and what he is like. So let me be clear that we are not even capable of fully understanding who God is, okay? We have finite brains, they can only attain so much information. We are very limited in what we can even understand about God. And though humans have tried and tried to, to get God to fit in theological boxes, he doesn't. With saying this, he has chosen to reveal himself through his word about who God is. So why is it important that worship starts with truth? Um, let me give you an example. <clears throat> Let's say you came to me and you said, hey, I met your wife yesterday. And you're like, cool, yeah? And you're like, yeah, she was like super tall. Um, and she had like bright red hair, it was really cool. And then, you, and then you go on to say, yeah, and that skull tattoo, like where did she get that on her neck? Like that is so cool. Like I would look at you like, uh, no, I don't think you met my wife, right? Because <laughs> Because my wife's about five, six, blonde, and she doesn't have a tattoo on her body. And, and so why is this important? Because the truth is it's dangerous, and this is the same danger we have with worship without truth, is we can persuade ourselves that we know someone when we actually don't. If we don't begin with a right understanding of who God is, we can create our own ideas of God. And without truth, we can be guilty of crafting a more suitable God for ourselves from our own imaginations. The Bible has a word for this. It's called idolatry. True worship begins with truth revealed through God's word. God's word is the foundation of worship. 
And so that's where we begin. Uh, <clears throat> Ryan read the psalm talking about the creation of God, and that is so revealing about who God is because here's where it starts. God is creator, and you are created. Like that's where worship starts. God is a creator. You are created. And you were created for the purpose of worshiping the creator. Like that's the truth. God is infinitely wise. God is infinitely powerful. He is perfect in any way, and he lacks nothing. This means that, I want you to catch this, God doesn't need your worship. So then why do we do it? Um, we don't worship God to stir his affections toward us. We worship God to stir our affections toward him. Um, worship keeps us rightfully humble and dependent upon our creator. See, when I uh, neglect to worship, I forget who I am. I forget that I am a created being that is finite and will answer to an infinite God. Um, He goes on to talk about spirit. So what is Jesus talking about when he says that true worshipers will worship in spirit? I believe he's saying a couple of things. One is this, that worship is no longer locational. Um, so we see this in John 4, where she's saying, like, like which, which mountain is the right one? Like, you guys say it's that one. We go to this one. Help us understand, like, which, which mountain are we supposed to to go to, and he basically says, neither. You no longer have to go to a temple or an altar or a church building as we do now to worship God. You see, when Jesus Christ was crucified, the veil, does everyone know what the veil is? Let me give you a little context if you don't know what this veil is. See, in Old Testament, Old Covenant worship, they would go to this temple and it had different rooms and you'd finally get to the last room where it had a thick, tall, wide veil, curtain that separated this room from where everyone else was. And only one time a year was one person allowed to go into this room to offer the blood sacrifice for the rest of the people. And this room was where the presence of God was. This curtain literally separated the presence of God from anyone else but the high priest. And see, when Jesus was crucified, something amazing happened. This veil tore completely in two, from the top to the bottom, completely opened up. What was this saying? This was saying that my presence is no longer limited to this room. It is now accessible to every believer. This is awesome. <laughs> His presence no longer resides in a temple, but within believers. This means we have access to his presence every minute of every day, anywhere, everywhere. So if the only time that you worship God is when you enter a religious building, then you've missed the whole point. Worship is no longer limited to a location. So... Where should we worship? Everywhere. 
everywhere. You should worship driving your car to school. You should worship in the library studying. You should worship in the gym, in the grocery store. You should worship in the shower. Like Everywhere you go, the presence of God goes with you. Therefore, you should worship. This is the amazing thing. Uh, so worship is no longer locational, and it now comes from a changed heart by the Spirit of God. Jesus says this in John 7. He said, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. See, the Spirit of God awakens our spirit to truth of who Jesus is. He then fills us with his presence. He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new mind, and he gives us new desires. And Jesus addresses this in Matthew 15. He's scolding these Pharisees about their religious traditions, and he says this about them. Quoting the prophet Isaiah, he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So what's he saying? No heart, no worship. You cannot worship God without heart. Um, the gospel should absolutely affect our hearts. It's not just intellectual information. There is deep spiritual and emotional response that should take place when one understands the gospel. See, hear this, God loves you. This God that created everything you can see loves you. He took the punishment for your sin. He promised to be with you, to never leave you, to give you peace and joy in this life despite circumstances. He promises an eternity so awesome that you can't even begin to comprehend it. This is not intellectual information. This is heart language. <laughs> the gospel should fill your heart with joy. The gospel should make you emotional. I bet, that, I bet that messed some of you up, right? Because you're like, I don't want to be emotional. Especially you guys, right? You tough guys. You don't want to be emotional. <laughs> Listen, I've been following Jesus now for longer than I think everyone in this room has been alive. <laughs> and here's the reality. I still weep when I think about what Jesus did for me because I know what I have been forgiven of. Jesus said the one who's forgiven of little loves little. But see, I know I've been forgiven greatly. I know who I was and I know who I am today because of what he has done for me. So I am highly emotional about that. My God saved me. And if you don't, if that doesn't move your heart, then you don't understand the gospel because you deserve hell. That's the reality. You deserve hell. And our God has given us a way to have eternal life. If that doesn't fill your heart with joy, oh, may slap yourself right now because you need to wake up. <laughs> We're emotional beings. Emotions are not bad. They're from God. Emotionalism is bad. 
See, manipulating people's emotions to try to get a desired response, that's not okay. But the reality is God created you and designed you with emotions. They're there for a reason. Um, Truth without emotion produces dead doctrines and empty practices. It's like this. It's like someone who, uh, for a living, writes generic greeting cards. Have you ever got a birthday card or, or some type of card? Uh, like, how many of you ever read, like, the, the pre-written stuff, the typed, and been like, oh, it just moves my heart so much? Not really, right? Because you know somebody wrote it in a room somewhere, knowing what would sell, knowing it's going to be on a shelf, somebody's going to grab it, right? It doesn't move my heart when I get some long, lengthy, like, typed out birthday card. You know what moves my heart? What comes after that? The handwritten part. Why? Because I know that actually came from the heart of the person who gave me the card. There was an emotional connection to that part. Because that came from somebody that knows me. And so it doesn't matter how poorly written it is. Like, it it moves my heart because I know there's an emotional connection. Uh, John Piper puts it this way. Where affections for God are dead, worship is dead. So true worship must come from a heart that values God and treasures God above all things. Though worship happens in our hearts, it's never meant to be kept internal. Worship is designed to put the worth of God on display to a world. The English word worship comes from this, worth-ship. It's displaying worth. It's displaying the value of God in our lives. Uh, We see this play out in Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 15 says this, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So in this passage we see two external pr- expressions of worship. The first one is praise, the fruit of our lips, right? This most of the time in the scriptures come forth in singing. Colossians 3 tells us to sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts. Jesus said that from the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. And I would even argue that the the mouth sings from the overflow of the heart. The Bible contains over 400 references to singing and 50 direct commands for God's people to sing. The longest book in the Bible is the Psalms. Guess what? It's a book of songs. So what is the deal with all this singing, right? Let me put it simply. Singing moves our hearts. Music is an emotional language. Like, think about it. It's no coincidence that some of the the most popular songs of all time are love songs and heartbreak songs. Why? Because it does something to our hearts. Our hearts connect to those. We feel those songs. Um, Songs move our emotion in a way that speaking doesn't. 
I mean, think about that. If I stood up here and just like quoted uh, the lyrics to Amazing Grace, like it'd be great, it'd be good, right? It'd be truthful. It would still like make me happy. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Like, I mean, that's true, right? But how much powerful when you hear like somebody with a soulful gospel voice, like start singing those lyrics. Like it does something here, right? You feel it. You don't just hear it and go, yeah, that's true. You feel it all throughout you. Singing connects the head and the heart. That's why we sing. Another reason is this, that God sings. Have you ever thought about that? Like, I, I don't know what that sounds like, but I can't wait to hear it. In Zephaniah 3, it says that God exalts over his people with loud singing. Think about that. God exalts over you with loud singing. I want to hear that song. On the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, what was he doing? He was singing hymns with his disciples. We worship a God who created singing, who sings himself, and he wants us to be like him, so he has given us a great gift in music to engage with him. Uh, The second external expression that we see in this is good deeds. This tells me that everything we do has the potential to be worship. Everything. A simple gift of hospitality is an act of worship. A donation to a charity, if it's given from the heart, it's worship. Holy living is spiritual worship, according to Romans chapter 12. When we're willing to sacrifice our time, our talents, and our treasures... For the good of others, we are putting the supreme value of God on display. That's worship. Um, just want to close with this. Uh, you guys can come get ready if you want to. It's another John Piper quote for, for those of you who are desiring God fans. says this, the inner essence of worship is to know God truly and then respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God, treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. And then that deep Restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in demonstrable acts of praise from the lips and demonstrable acts of love in serving others for the sake of Christ. Worship is spirit and truth. Worship is head and heart. And so, I see no better way than to respond tonight in worship. Would you join me? Uh, Go ahead and stand up, guys. Let's just pray real quick. God, I just want to say thank you. You have been so good. But we don't deserve anything you have done that you have given, God, and you have been overwhelmingly gracious.
So I pray you would open our eyes to see your greatness, to see your glory, uh, to see your worthiness, God. And would you move our hearts to respond to who you are, God? Would you be magnified in our lives?